Hey, family, Eddie Morrison is our guest today, and I'm excited about talking with Eddie because he's applying some PPP to the work he does. What's that, P? People, places, and partnerships. You see, Eddie has a rich background as an entrepreneur, but in his current life, he is working diligently through an organization he founded called Lift Orlando. Lift Orlando, as a matter of fact, is an organization, not a person, who won Floridian of the Year because of the work they're doing in strengthening historically African-American communities in a model that can work for every community. Enjoy the conversation. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for investing this time with us today. Oh, Janice, it's a real honor to be here with you. Thank you so much. Well, we've got a lot to talk about and I can, you know what? I'm not going to wait to jump into it. First, I just got to ask you about Lyft Orlando. That's what brought us to this moment, to have a conversation about that. And then we'll get into Young Eddie and all that stuff. But tell us about Lyft. Lyft us up. Well, the whole idea is really to ignite a movement of business leaders that embrace the notion of doing more than just writing checks for charities, but rolling up their sleeves to solve some of the most complex social problems in our city. And the notion behind that is the inspiration that a city is only as strong as the strength of its neighborhoods, and we can't claim prosperity while we're leaving people behind. Oh, I love that so much. And you know, you're doing that work in uh, Florida. You've got such a diverse population. You've got uh, such a uh, uh, talent. I mean, Florida offers so much. How are you finding uh, the opportunity to deliver to that community uh, with any firm type of strategy? I was really interested in the direction you're taking. Can you share that a little bit? Well, one of the things we realized that was absent in our community, at least for a long time, was the recognition that the greatest points of distress, uh, whether that be uh, educational attainment, crime, housing, healthcare, all of these issues we concern ourselves about in our cities are not evenly distributed across every market. In fact, they're usually hotly concentrated in certain neighborhoods. And the reason for that is certain neighborhoods has, and have endured the disinvestment and erosion of institutions and really structural investments that would have made it strong otherwise. So when you start to look at that, we found ourselves in some of the most amazing historic neighborhoods in our city, in the heart of our urban core, um, and beginning to try to reverse what's created the downward cycle to create cycles of prosperity for families. So we do that three ways, investing in people, places, and partnerships. So who are the people that already live there, the leaders, the role models, the, the parents that could be agents of change in their own community? What are the places where people live, learn, work, and grow that we could reinvest, rebuild, and establish with the highest level of quality and design and beauty that are inclusive for people of all income levels? And then who are the partnerships that can help accelerate that? We we don't try to add one more nonprofit to the sector, but to add something that's been missing, which is what we call a community quarterback to really make all these parties work together better. That's so interesting that you uh, have that PPP. And it's quite <laughs> a different PPP. Uh, when, when you talk about uh, the people and you're doing this work, you have to know the constituency you are serving and a lot of times we think we know 
a community. That's exactly and right. That community can have some very different energy or a very different need than we perceive looking from the outside, wanting to do good. How do you how do you manage forward that for the partnership part of this PPP you're delivering? <laughs> well, you laugh at that, Eddie. You laugh at that. <laughs> I love it. Good. Well, it's also some a very central part of what we do. So this uh, the work of the community quarterback can be organized in three buckets. It's the idea of advancing equity building infrastructure and facilitating collaboration. Things uh, that for us, advancing equity simply means amplifying the voice of residents. Uh, when we started out, we had a lot of good intentions and ideas. We recognized our needs for certain things in this community, but we luckily had the wisdom of experts that pointed to a couple of aspects of our approach that needed to be nuanced. So instead of showing up and asking is a caring and connected neighbor. So we hired people who were unemployed in the community, trained them on how to do door-to-door uh, -door surveys, uh, and then used different types of questions. There were questions about what do you love about your neighborhood? Uh, what would you like to change if you could change anything? And the real kicker question was, what are you willing to do about it? Uh, what kind of skin in the game do you want to have? And that led to discovering that there were generations of amazing people who would raise their kids. Gotten, many of them were accomplished, successful, educated people who couldn't live anywhere, but chose to stay here in this community. And at the face of the growth of downtown, many had sincere fears about what this meant. So when I started showing up in the neighborhood, you can imagine how highly suspect I sounded with a big smile saying, we're here from the business community and we want to help. <laughs> I got called quite a few names, uh, went home with my tail between my legs every many a nights uh, before we could build enough trust to at least say, this is good for us to think together about how we get ahead of gentrification to ensure that a future that is prosperous includes the families that have called this neighborhood home for so long. And so we're always working to build and rebuild and strengthen trust in the community uh, to do every project or program with the voice and desires of people there and with a good inventory of how are they going to be involved, how are they going to have skin in the game. If anything can be done by residents, our job is to get out of the way, cheer it on. Maybe we support it, but for the most part, in 10 years, when a child grows up here and talks about what happens in their community, we don't want them to talk about some nonprofit. Hopefully, they'll talk about how their auntie and grandma and, and pa got involved in something incredible that transformed their neighborhood. And yeah, maybe there was some group downtown, some lift Orlando group that helped somehow, uh, because that's a greater legacy to live up to. Oh, wow. You know, there's. I do want to get into why you wanted to do this work, but before we go there, can we stay in some of the conversation you just had? Mm -hmm. You talked about gentrification and getting in front of it. What does that look like? And how are we defining it is it good or bad, you know? Oh, that is the question. You know, the, the technical term or definition of gentrification, it, the word literally means the return of investment. Uh, it comes from the era of the landed gentry where people lived on land and they paid to live on that land and they worked that land, but it wasn't their own. The aristocracy owned all the land. And then cities came about in the industrial revolution as people left the kind of open lands of farm fields, the gentry sort of disappeared in many ways. When in, the in 1999, every major city was hollowing out because the suburbs were growing to the max 
Cities had become war zones throughout the 90s. People didn't want to labor invest in the cities. And something switched in 2000. Uh, overnight, uh, cities were busting. People were moving back. And this has been happening everywhere in the world. Major cities are only growing larger. And so that return of investment or return of investors, of people who own land, created the term gentrification. The problem is our modern experience with gentrification is that it means wealthy white people moving in, poor black people getting pushed out. And as one lady said to me in those early meetings circa 2014, uh, she had raised her children in the neighborhood, grown up there herself. She said, listen, I don't expect the neighborhood to be 100% black forever. I just don't want it to be like we were never here. And that caution has remained with us. Most people, they, they don't mind having the cool coffee shop or the convenient grocery store or the hip new restaurant. It's just that usually it's not for them. So how could you uh, get ahead of that energy and momentum? Uh, you know, if you, if you compare gentrification to the pouring of a giant bucket of water upon an area, that, if you pour that all in at once without any controls, it will displace and wash away everything that was there before. But you put some boundaries on that and you control that pour just right, that rising tide will lift all boats. And so the idea is that we need investment. We need the return of capital. We need ownership. We need leadership, entrepreneurship, housing, all these developments we all agree are good, but we need to do it with a hand that guides it for the benefit of the people there. And so we've been super proud of seeing an increase in per capita income in the neighborhood over the last five years. It has begun to close the gap uh, between the difference of income rising in Orlando versus this neighborhood uh, at dramatic levels while retaining the vast majority of all the people who live here when we first showed up. Uh, and it's something we steward with gratitude because honestly, I can't control people's desire to move, right? If you say you want to pick up and go somewhere, you have the right to do so. But how do we make this the kind of place you wouldn't want to leave or ultimately what our ultimate vision is that this would be a neighborhood where children grow up with hope and return with joy when they can move anywhere they want to move, they couldn't think of a better neighborhood to raise their own kids than this one. Many of these communities across the United States that, um, that fit the profile of the communities you are serving are very well located. It's not thinkable that they are not going to have some interest in others coming. You said something that really touched me. I mean, well, you said a lot that touched me. One of the things you said that hashtagged itself was as though we were not here. Yeah. We were never here. Like we were never here. Can you lean in on that a little bit? And why does that matter? It's supremely important. It's a lesson that I think we were sensitized to, but definitely learned more and more working with the community. The tendency of showing up, even if you have good intentions, is to behave as if you just found a blank canvas in a community and you're building something brand new. When the deeper truth that there have been people there building bright futures with great hopes and fighting hard to build a community long before you showed up. And so it's an important acknowledgement to realize we're really standing on the shoulders of the people that have been doing what they can to make their community strong. And if you do that, then you can properly integrate the acknowledgement of that ethnic heritage the history, the legacy of the heroes in that community, even while you're bringing a new infusion of investment and capital. So that, that second P of places is recognizing that it's the environments that people have to tolerate, the places that when you live in the place you simply can afford to live and everyone around you immediately is 
kind of dealing with those similar circumstances, it limits the reach of your network, your access to opportunity, and people may criticize you for making poor choices, but in fact, you all you have are poor options. Uh, and you start to put people in environments where they have greater options, greater alternatives, you'll see them start making amazing choices for themselves and their children because they're trying their best. Listen, for every one bad actor who makes a poor choice and ends up in the back of a cop car cuffed up on the nightly news, there are a hundred families in that same neighborhood working hard, just trying to provide a bright new day for their children. It's just that that doesn't make the news. <laughs> There's nobody writing stories about that in the paper. So we try to spend enough time on the ground, in the neighborhood, surfacing who those quiet heroes, those street saints, those servant leaders in the community are, who are just trying to do well by their own and by their neighbors and need a little extra support, need to feel connected to others who are trying to do the same. But then in any community, it doesn't matter how much money they have or don't have, trying to uh, rebuild decades of disinvestment and lost infrastructure in either quality housing, or healthcare, or education, or parks, public spaces is just not something most neighborhoods have the internal technical expertise or capital to do. Those are rare forms of technical investment that are required to do that. So that's where we try to invest in rebuilding that basic infrastructure that shores up the community and levels the playing field for children and families. Um, when we talk about, let's stay with places a little bit, um, as you were talking, you were describing more than your community, um, especially when you talk about the need of it. You may not remember, you may not be old enough to remember. When, Try me. Okay. Washington, D.C.'s pet name, what was it for years? Oh, my gosh. I'm trying to remember what you're referring to. Chocolate City. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Chocolate That's right. City. It was the black capital of America. That's right. Yeah. And now it may it may be white chocolate. You know, it may still have chocolate. But those folks were up and out very quickly, selling short and not not gaining enough to oh. buy anywhere else. Uh, was that their behavior or was it you talked about? talking with people and finding out what they want for their community and how they want it. You also said something that, I mean, you're hashtagging the moment away. You were talking about, you know, what often looks like poor choices or simply poor options, maybe simply poor options. Okay. So when we look at DC, DC has gentrified. When we look at Lemert Park, it's in a mm -hmm. process. Lemert Park is in LA, and you may be familiar with Lemert Park, um, you know, because it, it has a very strong culture. Yeah. Um, what can Lemert Park learn from what you're doing that DC didn't get the chance, the option to learn from you? Well, you're, you're hitting on something very important that is lost on most people who have concerns for their city and their community. If you are either philanthropically invested or you're a generous supporter or volunteer in the nonprofit sector, in Orlando, we learned that the vast majority of our work in the independent sector was about addressing issues and causes across our region. So we wanted to feed the hungry and house the homeless and address these issues that are very real. 
But the categories of crisis relief services were so crowded, over 90% of our nonprofits were trying to serve some immediate crisis. The problem is 95% of our poor were not in crisis. There was no recent event. There was no hurricane, no earthquake that led to their circumstances. They were in chronic long-term poverty and that poverty was concentrated in a few neighborhoods. In every city in America, anybody can tell you where those neighborhoods are. Where, where do you not want to be late at night? Where do you not want your kids to go to school? Where do you not want name fill in the blank? You will find those places have a history. It's not that people woke up one day and decided they want to ruin their neighborhood, and that's why it's not an ideal place. There are circumstances that involve the disinvestment, the lack of access, whether mortgages or small business loans or infrastructure or equal investment from the community at large that make these communities lag behind. And it's the reason why today you hear so many people quote that your zip code is the number one predictor of your life outcome. You can give me a child without showing me the color of their skin, their DNA, their family name or lineage, just give me their name, their address. And with alarming accuracy, an expert can tell you their likelihood of graduating from high school, ever going to college, landing behind bars, even how long they're likely to live. And that just is not right, uh, especially since that child had zero choices in the macro impact of that statistic. Of course, we all have individual freedoms and responsibility. You can choose to ruin your life all you want. That alternative is always available to us. But some circumstances are so preset for communities that have been underinvested historically that all of our charity and good intentions and, and philanthropic investments are missing it because we don't acknowledge that poverty and place are connected. If you want to start create, creating more just and equitable, upwardly mobile cities in America, we have to start realizing people are trapped in places where we have disinvested and created a lack of access to opportunity for generations. You want to reverse that? You got to go back to focusing on those few places. And it's also where philanthropy gets the most bang for the buck. Final example on this, if you were my doctor and I was diagnosed with cancer and you wanted to treat that years ago, your best alternative was to radiate my whole body. You'd kill a little bit of all of me, but you'd hopefully get rid of that cancer. Today, at times, you may have the alternative of with laser accuracy, focusing on the one place where that cancer exists, not touch the rest of me at all, but you give all of me life. This is what we have an opportunity to do for cities today. There are a handful of neighborhoods in every city that are causing distress for the whole region, but especially for the people who live there. Care for those people in that limited number, in those limited places, and you make the entire city a better place, and you reverse the cycle of poverty into cycles of prosperity for those families. So we've been betting on that, that if you uh, simultaneously help people make all the great choices they want to make and improve their odds by transforming their physical environment, eventually they don't need charity, they don't need any nonprofits to be active there at all. They're just another thriving neighborhood in a city. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Listen, when we think, Eddie, about Sam and Penny Jones settling in Orlando, close near Orlando, as ex-slaves in 1880, and we hear the conversation you're having today, what measures as success and what measures as failure? Is that gap where you're making your best impact right now? 
Dennis, I am so impressed that you would mention Jonestown and Sam and Benny Jones. Most people who live in Orlando do not know those names. Uh, this is the, the first Black settlement in Central Florida and has incredible implications. Its history, its birth and demise have incredible revelations to who we are as a city. Um, I think we need to zoom out a lot of times when we talk about justice, inequality, or poverty, or prosperity. We need to recognize and remember with gratitude uh, America is the place that invented the idea of mass upward mobility. Never before in the history of the world and never since then has anyone come close at delivering to a mass populace the notion that every citizen with all access to rights to what this country has to offer with this economic and political system has the ability to create generational wealth through private ownership and all the rights and freedoms that are promised and by is what has drawn so many people to America, my husband included, who most people never saw him as an immigrant, but he was a white male, 100% lineage back pre 1500s, uh, because England had the book of records, right? Yes. He, he travels back to the pre uh, 1500s in his family line, who came here, naturalized as a citizen before he met me, but he was drawn here toward the opportunity of mass upward mobility, not just from the movies he saw as a kid. He was a young boy in World War II mm -hmm. and all of the men had gone off to fight World War II. Homes were derailed or, you know, for, to, to create weaponry. And he grew up in a, in a country that had a lot of want and need in it. So when he became an adult, after he did his national service, he headed to America because he wanted to come to this place where the fact that a war that broke out and deprived him of an education would not be an impediment in America to his opportunity to wildly succeed. The dream he had is the same dream so many other people have, but fundamentally, it was the dream that Sam and Penny had leaving slavery to build forward. So I'm just listening to you and it's 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 filling a whole lot of places in my soul to hear you mm. speak to how well, you I, keep I, Likewise, as you share his story, because I think what we need to recognize is solving the problem of poverty, generational concentrate, all these labels we want to put on it. It's not some mystery, some enigma. We do this better than anybody. We've done it more successfully than anything in history. We just haven't done it equally for everyone. So we have the know-how, we have the we have the technology, as they say. But are we giving it equal equally out to every citizen? Does every person in this country have access to it in the same way? And to the degree we can all acknowledge that we have not done that equally throughout our history. Those are the places that have been left behind, the families that have not fully benefited. We've taken wave upon wave of, of mostly illiterate immigrants and turned it into the wealthiest generation. The largest transfer of wealth in history is happening right now. That's the My husband the wanted to become history. a millionaire. My husband wanted to become a millionaire. He did it more times over than you can count. <laughs> and he still, he, he passed, he transitioned just over a year ago of Alzheimer's. Mm. Even in his last cognitive moments, he was so puzzled by how he could come to this country and be so advantaged yes. in ways I could not, having been generationally here yeah. for, you know, four generations back. 
it just it 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 it, it unsettled him that he could get better opportunity than I could in ways that he could measure and he could feel. Yeah. It, it broke yeah. his heart to some degree. Uh, so yeah. what you're saying is feeding a lot, Eddie. And I think a lot of people are listening to what you're saying. I do want to go back though to my question and dig in a little deeper. What about your process is can be a teaching mode? if not a pilot, for other communities. There are still those communities oh. who face the potential. Again, it's going to ring in my head and my heart through the night when you said as, as if they were never there, you know, like they were never there. What about those communities? Can, what can they well, learn from what you're doing? How are you doing it? Well, I think one of the key things to realize, you cannot be uh, engaged in transformation without being transformed yourself. And uh, almost a decade into this work, one of the things you realize really quickly is that though, yes, you want to create benefit and advantage for people to live in these communities. And that may mean some people making choices that might be different. But the fact is, all of us need to do that. What's significantly different is that you realize that the things that need to change in the neighborhood don't live in the neighborhood. Decisions about the quality of these schools, about the quality of this housing, about the safety and the health access, that all these are decisions made outside of these communities. So when you're trying to mobilize whether it's philanthropy or people in power to make decisions to be engaged in these issues, you realize the first people to change are them. Uh, that the way we think about our community is what is at the root of these problems, that we've been selfish in the way that we've handled the power of the American dream. And to experience the not just the selfish pursuit of happiness, but the joy of true shared prosperity, we need to start to be uh, to, to share the power of the American dream more broadly. Because to the degree we do, not only do we leave some behind, but eventually we all pay the price for it. Every city is held back by the places that have been neglected, by the people that have been forced to live in despair. And with some of the things we've seen over the last few years, it's uh, proof of the saying that there's nothing more dangerous than a hopeless man or a hopeless woman. Uh, if you can create places that not only provide hope, but deliver on the promise and potential of the American dream, you start to create such a shared and common sense of optimism and productivity and momentum. The same thing that people praise about immigrants, you would see in every American if there was a sense that the people had access to the same shots and opportunities. We got a lot of work to do, but this is not something that is unsurmountable. This is something doable. If something is a man-made problem, then it can be man or woman unmade or undone. Uh, we can do better. It's within our reach to do so. So We don't have we to do wait for God on that, do we? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I think well, saying, faith act, without works is dead. <laughs> and people act sometimes like these issues because they've been around for so long. We sort of feel like, well, it's always been that way. It's probably always going to be that way. No, it wasn't always that way. We made decisions to make it this way. That means we can make decisions to do better. Did you ever, um, there's a documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. It's all about, you know, insiders and these social networks, Pinterest and Facebook and Google, uh, and, and how they regret some of the social impacts of these technologies, although their original intentions were good. And at the end, they're all, it's such a depressing and, and, and 
tantalizing and fantastic documentary, but they're all trying to say something uplifting in the last like five minutes of it. And one by one, their quotes can be summarized by saying, you know, we created this and now we realize it's doing a lot of harm, but if we created it, we can also do better. And I think there's a story there for America. America was an invention. We're the first nation not related by bloodline because the founders had enough hubris to say, yeah, we should have the same rights as the king. Let's be a nation of our own, just because. So we had the chutzpah, we had the, 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 the willpower to create something new and unseen. We were not perfect. We, we made things and established things that were not fair and helped so many people out. But because all of those were human decisions, that means we also have the power to do better. And we don't have to throw the baby up with the bathwater. People start to divide lines about loving or hating America. Listen, we all remember the first day we realized our parents were not perfect. <laughs> like, I still love mom, but mom's got issues. <laughs> and dad's got his own baggage. They're still mine. I still love them. I still I'm going to let life. you go with that. I, 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 my, my parents are still perfect. And I still say, because mama said. <laughs> but to your point about America being, you know, this incredible new experiment, we are relatively young. And so we do have sure. the ability the agility to change. It is back to the willpower. And how do we come to land on solutions that focus on what we agree about versus what we disagree about? Absolutely. That may make me Pollyanna. I am highly hopeful. I'm uh, with you. We can both be accused of that. I, I believe our best days are going to be shared days. You talked a little bit about the social dilemma and um, the, um, and the, emphasis on if we made it this way, we can improve it from here. I did want to ask you, though, when we go back to the communities like the community you're working in and like the many that, you know, have similar profiles, where people work and what they're ready to do matters a lot as well. Now, Eddie, um, not that many years ago, there is a company, I won't give the industry because you'll know right away there. And I want to be thoughtful to them because I do believe they're working for change. Uh, but they had approached me around the idea of me finding black and brown workers to come work at their facility. By design, they had built a big corporate campus that was way out near the mountains, absolutely gorgeous setting. And the campus itself was like, you know, a masterpiece in uh, design and architecture. And they provide a very, very needed service and product. And so they get a lot of federal funding and they were being looked at for you know, how are you hiring and what is your, you know, before we called it DE and I, yeah. um, and had, and had the I in it, it used to be just diversity. Yes. Um, and I'm like, why are we looking for diversity? It's always been here. Inclusion is the thing. In any event, they wanted me to help them get workers and these workers they needed were at a certain salary. And I came in and it was so obvious to me and they've been working on this for quite some time with a previous provider of, of, of uh, staffing. And within less than an hour, I was like, the workers you're looking for live 50 and 60 miles away. The hours they will work will institute rush hour travel, which makes an eight hour day for them at best an 11 hour day. They likely have children because a lot of the work is physical. 
and so that has family impact. I don't know how you're going to say you're looking for these workers and target them without some rapid change to their community because your community is so far away where you want. And you know, LA doesn't have the friendliest uh, community, right? You know, public transportation is not running a lot here. It's in the news right now to just get us from North to South. Uh, but Eddie, you see where I'm going with this. You know where yes. I'm going with this. So how do we bring work into our communities or how do we better access for people? Whether that is how we pay them, what we pay them or how we upskill them quickly. Uh, so that they can make the drive. Um, when we look at our communities, I was recently home over COVID and I was having a, hosting a call, an international call and had to phone an executive on my team and say, take this call. I had to go find a land phone and call them because the internet was not there. So whether we're looking at AI at work or internet connectivity at home, we're looking at how people in some communities are stressed to survive, let alone thrive in a new and evolving world. How do you look at that for the community you service? And does your nod and your smile indicate you know this oh too well? I mean, you're, you're dead on. You're absolutely right. Uh, what's interesting about that is that the principles that apply are not principles that are in some way exclusive to working with communities that have been underinvested. Let's say that I was all for the worst kind of stereotypical gentrification. I'm going to tear down a bunch of old housing on the west side of town. I'm going to rebuild fancy new condos and restaurants. And if I were doing a master plan development with a significant May increase, I take the wood? May I take the old wood? <laughs> <laughs> I, would be, I would be thinking about, oh, the people are going to live here. Where are their kids going to go to school? Where is the nearest park? Where are they going to go to work? Can we find some companies nearby? I mean, a grocery store here. Like the, the convenience and connectivity and holistic thinking that we apply in the suburbs, that we apply in master plan developments of any kind, would incorporate not the assurance that everybody who lives here is going to work in this particular place down the road, but that you want to create the connectivity of all the basic essentials of a well thought out community. We need to stop entering communities thinking that building affordable housing is the answer, that getting people in jobs is the answer, that providing health care is the answer. All of these things are the illusion of silver bullets. If you only do one, the others, if they're failing, will undermine the other. So yes, I think you need uh, work opportunities nearby. You need transportation solutions that connect them to work opportunities that might be far off. But it all boils down to thinking about and people to connect other complex. communities to them, and to connect other communities to them. Absolutely. For, for the rich culture, they bring in their local businesses, exactly. whether it be food or music or you know yeah. just the opportunity to bring others to them safely and you know, with a, an enjoyable experience. Janice, you'd appreciate, we just helped found the first black business founded Main Street in the city of Orlando. Uh, and the vision of the group of founders, all restaurateurs and entrepreneurs in the neighborhood behind it is uh, the same way that most cities have a little Italy or a Chinatown, or we have a little Vietnam here. Where's the black part of town that we all want to patron and hang out? And regardless of your ethnic background, you want to go there with your children, enjoy great music, a restaurant. You don't drive through in a hurry or around it. This is a place that you are, you really are proud and excited that exists in your city. 
And the, with the national awareness of the fame to Black Wall Street, this, there's an, an opportunity for creating places that celebrate and preserve Black leadership, entrepreneurship, and history in our inner cities in a way that everybody can patron, that everybody would welcome and celebrate, but does not remove the beautiful mark of that heritage in cities. And I think sometimes we think about it in exclusive ways. Like if it's if it's gonna be black, it's gonna be poor or low income. And it does not have to be the case. Too many of our young black professionals are choosing to blend in in other parts of the city instead of being part of making a name for their culture and history in the inner city core. And so there's an opportunity to do that. We're hoping to see that happen in Orlando in the very near future. And we're hoping more cities do something like that. Oh my goodness, you're making it sound so attractive. And I got to tell you, I wasn't considering Florida as a place to go to <laughs> to retire. You know, I mean, uh, you know, you know we all end up California. <laughs> but why are you competent to this? What is it that so mm-hmm. I guess I'm asking you two questions right now. Why are you so compelled by this at the personal level, if you'll share it? And why are you so competent to it? Why is it you? What about your experience? What did you walk away from to do this? Um, I say there are two, uh, two particular memories. My, um, my mom and dad divorced when I was young, about eight or nine years old. And we went from, uh, they both had great jobs working at the Geico headquarters in Maryland. I was actually born in DC, but grew up in Silver Springs, uh, Maryland. And when they divorced in the short years that followed, my mom found herself trying to raise kids on her own as a single mom on welfare, eventually in public housing, and trying to get take advantage of every public benefit we could in order to survive. Uh, a few years later, she remarried, and uh, my stepdad was a successful entrepreneur at a young age, and I got to see the power of business to provide for my family and for other families. And that the spirit of being able to make life possible for so many through the power of business was something that really got me hooked. But by the time I started my professional career working here downtown in the Orlando Chamber, I found myself in rooms where business leaders, often not a large number of them, meeting with the mayor, with the CEO of the largest banks and other folks, had concerns for the macro issues in a city, transportation, workforce development, education, economic development, that most people, millions of people, really never even thought about. They're just trying to survive another week, feed their families. And that connection between the conditions affecting the most vulnerable families, having been one, having grown up in one, and the power for the most powerful people to make decisions that affect so many is one that is missed by people too often. And I have seen how people who realize that sense of responsibility, the privilege and opportunity it is to leverage power for its true purpose, which is justice, which is creating opportunity for others, creates such a sense of joy and pride and meaning and purpose. There are way too many people in our nation today, blessed in more ways than they can ever count, who are not experiencing a life of fulfillment of meaning and purpose. And for us, we lean in heavily on the responsibility of business leaders uh, to find a sense of purpose and meaning for the influence of their companies, the wealth that they've accrued, that could really help galvanize all their skills towards something that's much bigger than themselves or than their brand by helping build more inclusive communities where everyone prospers. So personally, Uh, There's a sense that I relate to the families we're trying to serve and to the ambitions of wanting to prosper. But also having been an entrepreneur myself, having been in the business community in so many different ways, I see that this actually a mutually beneficial relationship 
that people in power also need the life and joy that comes of standing on the right side of justice. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Whew. Eddie, you just talked about having been able to grow up and see life on welfare and then seeing life faring well as a young mm. man. Um, when you consider those experiences that I'm believing were in a short cycle of your life, both of them occurred, mm -hmm. and you had a great consciousness at a personal level to the larger implications, does that then influence you when you talk about uh, the return of capital? Yeah, and I think it also the fact that it's it's worlds that normally collide. I mentioned earlier about how unwelcome my arrival was in the community when we first started because I was coming on behalf of the business community. Um, you asked me before we started about the the picture and uh, over my shoulder of this locomotive. It's a yeah, old historic. Yeah, I was going to that because it hit me. It hit me just like this. Well, you know, most of us, we, we, our, our attention gets caught by the speed and power of the train or really probably more likely where we want to go on that train. The train can't move without the rails that it sits on, but those rails don't stay together work without the ties underneath. And what we realized is that you needed the voice and power and will and dreams of the people who live in these communities where they've raised their children, where they built a future and a legacy to be included in how you shape the future, but you couldn't shape that future about the power and capital and influence of leaders in the larger city. But these two groups normally don't wanna to work together. Uh, folks in the community don't trust those with money that can bring a lot of change too quickly. And those with money don't wanna hear other people's opinion about how they spend that money. And so the work of tying those two forces like oil and water that don't wanna mix and creating bridges and bonds of trust around a vision for a shared community that benefits all is really the work that we do. Uh, and so we uh, we don't care who gets the credit. I, I forget who originally said you get a lot more done when you don't care who gets the credit. Uh, at the end of the day, that the right thing is happening in the community, that's the right thing that should be happening in our city. Uh, and so we try to play an often invisible role of tethering uh, power and the voice of residents into one force for change that moves the community forward, much like a train. And when you say, you know, you can get so much more done if you don't care who gets the credit. It's interesting because I just had a conversation last evening with someone who's taken over quite a large NGO. And one of the things that was commented about as a point of, you know, can, you, can we talk about this? Can you give me some thought on this, JVH, is um, that people were all rallying about what was in it for them or what the change would mean to them. And this new CEO said, and all I was trying to meet with them about was who the customer is, who the customer is, who the many people are who we've come together under this banner to serve. And it, 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 it became a thing of culture. Culturally, how are we approaching to solve these issues, you know? Uh, everything we solve isn't a problem. Sometimes it really is as, uh, you know, an opportunity, right? Absolutely. We solve for something better. And I think that's a mistake that sometimes when we look at our communities and certainly community that you're servicing through Lyft Orlando, we look at it and we see the problems on it. When we hear passion as you're speaking about solving, I see so much opportunity oh my in what you're saying. I mean, you talk about place and the zip code, 
but also talk about I mean, it seems a cheap shot. Talk about the weather. You know, it's fantastic, you know? And so if the weather is fantastic, then does it lend itself if the land is there mm. and can be treated that you can have uh, local gardens, you know? And if you have local gardens, are you improving the environment and the air that kids are smelling in their homes? And, you know, so my mind is going there when you're having this conversation about this rich opportunity to have this petri dish for success. Yes, you know it's interesting that you say that because our, our I mentioned that survey process in this community that that uh, first step of looking at what the assets were is a very well documented body of work originally out of Northwestern University. In fact, it's some of the work that Obama was trained in before he went back to law school was this discipline of asset based community development. It may be, some say, the only explanation for the dramatic drop in crime in every major city in America over the last 40 years. There's no change in law enforcement or policy that explains why the war zones of the 80s and 90s we knew in all those Charles Bronson movies and everything else really don't exist except for some places in Chicago and some corners of LA. You don't find that in most cities anymore. The fact is that the only thing that has grown at the same rate have been the number of grassroots, resident-led, community organizing efforts. Somebody starts a neighborhood watch program or a regular block party or a main street, and you don't want to deal drugs in that corner anymore because people are talking to each other. People check in with their neighbors when they don't see each other. That has been, had a resurgence in the last few decades in a way that's been transformative. It has not been successful at changing the economics. What's really good at doing that is the top-down capital-intensive investment of developers, municipalities, and corporations. They buy out undervalued assets, build a ton of new stuff. We all get excited about the new restaurant in town, but the people who used to live there end up displaced. And in many ways, the goal was to take, take these two forces often at odds and see them as incomplete models. And in the spirit of partnership, and by that we mean having a shared vision with the residents of Westlakes, the people that we serve in this community, having shared values about what it means to be a good neighbor and making sure we have a shared voice, uh, that we're speaking together about what's best for all. That in that kind of a spirit, you can build the foundation of trust that leads to shared communities in the future. And the kind of pride that children grow up in a place that they wanna represent the rest of their lives and even come back and raise their own children there. That's sort of the ultimate definition of success. It's not just how many people leave here successful, but how successful the place is that they all want to come back. When we were students at, um, when I, actually I was an upward bound student before a student at um, North Carolina A&T State University. Oh. Okay, fam, you Yes. <laughs> in, in, any, in any event, um, one of the things we would talk about out on those lovely grounds sitting outside back in the days when you sat outside on the grounds and you talked, yes. uh, literally on the grounds, uh, we would say, don't just vote, serve, and don't mm. just talk, listen. And that was what propelled us forward as that season of students to do the kinds of things we've done. And it's it's almost as though you were hearing the whisper of that in how you've chosen to do this, Eddie. Um, when does it get tough and when does it uh when does it get tempting to, you know, kind of scream? <laughs> um, you know, I think there there are moments early in the work for anybody who starts to do this, there are moments where 
the you you realize that the wounds of a community that has been mistreated where promises have been broken where people have broken and destroyed trust means you're going to run into uh, a lot of suspicion a lot of tough questions and even accusations with great frequency that will feel unfair until you realize that history makes it perfectly logical for people to doubt your good intentions but then once you realize that that makes sense um what's What's a challenge is realizing how many people in the name of doing good are building their own empires, whether they're for-profit or non-profit or public or private. And so that little bit about not caring who gets the credit, I have learned not caring who gets the credit is almost like a superpower. You're in a room full of people where everybody wants the credit and you're the one person happy to give it away. It is one of the biggest advantages you can have. Um, and then ultimately, when you start to think about how to move the work forward, the, 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 the angst we're having today is the tension between being faithful to the long-term hopes and promises to this community, while the things that we're learning are also so needed around our city and around our state. And so we're, we're starting now to do a lot of the hard work to, to document how, what are the ways we can help other groups accelerate. If, if something took me five years of beating my head against the wall, can I help you get it done in 18 months uh, just by having the confidence that I've paved the way for you? Uh, we, we're members of a national group called Purpose Built Communities, uh, Warren Buffett, Tom Cousins, and Julian Robinson. They fund this free consulting firm for any city trying to do the same thing inspired by the success of work of Eastlake in Atlanta. And they, they've learned a lot from failures and successes there and that they've tried to translate to others. But here we're with our- We're positioning that. We're positioning that on the screen right now. So good. Purposeville Communities, um, um, how did they visit? Yes, purposebuiltcommunities.com or .org. It's a fantastic resource. They've really been a lifeline for me. Ernie, when you're doing this work, as much as everything we're talking about makes sense, in most communities, when you start to talk about mixed income housing and cradle to career education and redeveloping communities that have been left behind, folks either look at you like you've got three heads or with a bit of pity, like, oh, that sounds real nice, Eddie. Good luck with that. <laughs> uh, but it is possible. Uh, it takes a lot of us and it's really hard, uh, but it is possible. Wow. The, you know, this is so exciting. So for all of our family who are listening right now, they know how to get to purposeful communities and they can also visit uh, Lyft Orlando, which by the way, recently was honored by the Floridian of the Year Award uh, from Florida Trend. Talk about that. It's a fantastic privilege and made extra sweet by the fact that it's only the second time they don't give it to an individual but they give it to a group of people. So all of our residents, our business leaders, our partners, our board, anyone who's made Lift Orlando possible, I get to say congratulations for being Floridian of the year. Uh, I think it's also an early indicator of a true appetite in our state for this kind of just and holistic investment in our communities that creates opportunities for families. Uh, we've, been, we've been so delighted. That was a really sweet surprise to start the year with. Mixed income housing. That's incredible because so often and for so long, uh, the trend is to isolate communities based on income. Yeah, if there was one practical idea that has incredible legs to it for communities to consider is the idea of economic mixing. This is the way America was organized for a long time. You didn't have to be wealthy. You might've lived in a small home, but you knew the family in the big house on the corner. You knew the folks that own the hardware store or the grocery store, and you were connected to these networks. 
Today, America is largely segregated by the gated community we can each afford. And you only really connect with people of the same economic stratosphere. The idea of building mixed income housing is one that's not new and a lot of people apply it in different ways that are not all ideal. For us, we define it as meaning a high, high standard of quality, design and amenities that any college educated, entrepreneurial, successful person would proudly live in that setting, raise their kids in that environment. But you do the hard work of creating affordability within for more vulnerable families. You know, when we started this work and to talk about mixed income housing, I spoke to a group and my uh, white credit as our founder, our chairman of our board, Tom Sidema, who first sort of stirred the pot for us to round up these business leaders to start lift. We're speaking about this concept. And one gentleman in the room said, how the heck are you gonna get high income families who wanna live next door to those people? And I remember, like, I, I can't even tell you what I said at the moment, but I was so um, stirred by that remark that shortly after I was talking with a gentleman by the name of Noel Khalil. Uh, Noel is a famed Atlanta developer, 30 plus years of mixed income housing, just passed away late last year. And he's a legend in this field, eventually became my joint, my joint venture partner in our first development. I said, Noel, you have been doing this for so long. Surely somebody has made a remark like that to you before. What do you say to that? Noel started laughing. Hey, you can mix incomes all day long. What you can never mix are values. And the values of wanting to live in a quiet, clean, safe community where your kids can run and you respect your neighbor's property, that transcends income levels. In fact, there are a lot of people make a ton of money. You would never want to live next door to them. <laughs> and that basic principle around organizing communities around community values that tie folks together on the notion of being good neighbors uh, has been an organizing force for us. Uh, when you make it so that people are brought together by that and not excluded by income, you create upward economic mobility because that's what makes the world go round. All of our greatest opportunities in life have been because of someone we knew opening the door to someone we didn't know. Uh, if you are isolated in a city in communities that don't have access to opportunity, you never tap into that intangible asset the rest of us take for granted. If you reintroduce that into the community, you really don't need many, you don't need many nonprofit programs there for people to thrive. They find their own way to success. And, and talk a little bit as well about cradle to career education. You know, the, the commitment to doing that entire pipeline um, is now a well-documented approach for a lot of good reasons. But one of the early ahas for us was learning about the largest longitudinal study done by the federal government on a federally funded program. Uh, the federally funded program was Head Start. And it found at the end of the study that Head Start was very successful by its goals. It was preparing children to start school with all of the basic fundamentals to do well in their first years of school. But when they traced the individual children that had gone to Head Start, since the vast majority of them went to underfunded inner city schools, uh, more than half by the time they were in third grade were so far behind, it was as if they never had Head Start. And so the commitment to not only provide world-class early childhood education, but make sure that children not just have the support services to stay in school and graduate and stay out of trouble, but more importantly, are also receiving the rigorous academic preparation to compete on any stage in the world, to go to any school of their choosing. A lot of times people talk about the need for the return of, uh, return of a tech, uh, vocational training and technical skills and sort of the trade and labor is like, yes, all those should be options our children consider, but they should not be limited to those. 
I want every child to be able to go to any school they want to. Uh, they want to go to Harvard or they want to start welding. I want to give them every tool they can so they can have every option available. And you talk also in this, uh, um, and I can't say ideal because you're making these things happen as you're talking, you're working toward them. Uh, you talk about health and wellness centers, not just health centers but wellness centers. Now, do I infer that you are talking about people keeping fit, not just getting fit or pre-planning for wellness? I mean, oh. go go for it. You're, you've got bold ideas and you're taking bold measures. Well, the, I'll connect these two because for us, our early success in education is, is nothing brighter than our early learning center, a partnership with the Bainham Family Foundation, out of Maryland, the, the Primrose School is one of the top three brands for schools. They're really 450 plus locations only in wealthy neighborhoods today. Uh, and Advent Health, uh, our local hospital system. And what we we have been able to create is the only Primrose schools where families of lower income brackets can find affordable ways for their children to receive the highest quality education in preschools. Uh, and it's the only one that has a full service kitchen with staff preparing fresh meals on site every day. And maybe one of the only centers of its standard in the country with a full-time physician assistant on site, your baby gets sick, you don't miss work, you bring them in. But it also provides wraparound health care for the entire family in the surrounding neighbors. Building on that, we've been able to orchestrate the first ever large-scale partnership between Avon Health, Orlando Health, and Florida Blue Insurers here in town with the help of a local foundation called Dr. Phillips Charities to build a, a really entirely new approach to community health. Our community had one-tenth the health access points of wealthy neighborhoods with the same population in town and far more need. And what we needed, however, was not just a clinic. If we opened a clinic, it would be plenty busy by people coming from all over, but it doesn't mean that people who lived in the neighborhood would trust that clinic to go there. So this approach is a 30,000 square foot facility. The bottom floor is entirely designed to be the heartbeat of the community. In fact, it's been named by residents as the heart of Westlake. You'll walk in, you'll see a fitness center, a cafe, meeting spaces for our local HOAs and community groups, a number of all these amenities and facilities that are meant and designed for residents to connect to each other and to opportunities. The kind of place you go grab a cup of coffee, catch up with your neighbor, and oh, by the way, there goes your doctor. Because the entire second floor is a full suite of vision, dental, behavioral health, pediatric services, all primary care. The notion that everything you need is there but it is connected to the network that you trust in the, in the neighborhood. Uh, we find that most healthcare investments in clinics do not build bridges on the terms of trust. They focus on access. People need access, let's go put something there. And we all know there's good reasons why in our communities we don't uh, unilaterally trust healthcare providers. There's a long history and rationale for suspecting those kind of outreaches. So this, we hope will build a kind of connection to to relationships and positive peer pressure and behavioral changes and social dynamics that lead to better quality of life, better health choices, a plethora of more healthy options, uh, but ultimately better longevity uh, to increase the quality of life and life expectancy in the neighborhood for everyone. So you got me on that soapbox because we're really, really proud and excited. Hey, about hey and, and look, don't step off yet because I want you to wrap <laughs> all of those elements up into something you refer to as economic viability opportunities. No, thank you. That, that is the real bottom line. You know, the year when we were first starting talking with the community about this and, and the ideas were bubbling up from their lips of, of housing and education and all the opportunities that were needed, 
it was it was a resident who first said, well, you can do all those things, but if people are still poor, <laughs> if they're not making more money, well, what are you going to do about people's ability to prosper? And so we really added this fourth pillar of long-term economic viability, the idea of creating generational cycles of prosperity in this neighborhood. How do we unleash the potential for that, for people to not only do better within their lifetime, but to start their children off in such a better place than where they started? That is the core essence of the American dream, right? Knowing that my children will do better than I did when I began. And that, that is a serious goal of ours to see our businesses grow, prosper, and create jobs in the community to attract employers into the neighborhood through new commercial developments. And to date, so far, we've been able to see over $25 million go to local women and minority-owned businesses in this area. We've increased and closed the gap of per capita income compared to the city by about 65%. But truly, we're just getting started. Uh, the goal is to completely upgrade the trajectory of financial prosperity for all of our families, while the neighborhood around them transforms into a place that elevates their dignity and pride and heritage at the same time. Eddie, our family is a vast uh, and, and, and highly uh, 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 diverse group of people who all come together to listen to moments as you're talking about uh, the audience of this podcast. And they happen to be in large part individuals. Many of them are in their twenties. Some are, you know, aged mm -hmm. as I am. Um, if they want to be able to get engaged in something similar to what you're talking about, how do they do it? How do they? How do they make that first step? And does that first step always have to lead to another one? How do they? How do they figure out how to do it? Listening um, to you is inspiring, but um, you know what's the call to action? Absolutely. If you're in Orlando, if you uh, want to become engaged in a direct way with us or any of our partners, obviously you can go to lakeorlando.org and find out about tours and opportunities to serve. Around the country, purpose-built communities is my favorite resource to recommend. Uh, they are an amazing network of peers, practitioners, and experts uh, in this space trying to do this in over, I think, over 25 cities now uh, around the U.S. And, and the goal is that we know, we know exactly the number of neighborhoods that need this in every state, in every city, and around the country. Enough of us start drinking this Kool-Aid and focusing our investments and work on loving a specific neighborhood for a long time, we can reverse all the things that are so painful for all of us to know about and endure. And I'd ultimately say what a mentor of mine said to me when we began this work, that our communities, what they need most is not more programs and services. It's not more big hearted volunteers doing rather generic labor around projects that people could honestly do for themselves. What our communities need most is the same thing you and I need is a caring and connected neighbor. Uh, you look for ways to do that in your own backyard and you'll transform the world in just as dramatic fashion as we're doing here. That is so awesome. Okay, look, look, we're going four for four now, okay? In four for four, I'm going to ask you four questions okay. and I want four answers from you, okay? And we're going to start out, Eddie. You get to invite anybody to dinner mm. you wish who is, they, they can be transitioned or they can still be alive. We're not talking about future people, though. Don't bring your <laughs> superhero. 
Well, maybe you can. <laughs> who's coming to dinner? Guess who's coming to dinner? Uh, how many people? Four. Four people. And um, Brian Stevenson from Equal Justice Initiative um, and the author of um, Just Mercy um, that was made into a movie. Um, Edward Cecil Guinness, the heir to the Guinness family uh, who advanced uh, affordable housing, education, healthcare in Dublin and London uh, centuries ago and on his wedding day took a five million pound sterling gift, gave it away to charity and moved with his new bride into a, a public tenement housing just to draw awareness of the conditions of it. Um, the uh, There's a gentleman here, uh, Eugene Gwynyard. Um, it's kind of been lost to history here in Central Florida. Uh, but he was the one who complained to his boss, John Graham, that he wanted to build a home worthy of how hard he worked. Uh, and that led to a movement that founded one of the first black suburbs in the South, Washington Shores, right here on the west side of Orlando. And it's the birthplace of most of the most illustrious black leaders here in Central Florida that have helped build uh, this region. Uh, and he, he would be a fascinating person to talk to. Um, and mm, gosh, so many people. Uh, Dr. King, Dr. King himself, um, to, to speak words of wisdom into how we're thinking about this work. Wow. You know what? I'm going to come help you serve at that dinner. I want to <laughs> and if you get another seat, open up. You know, John Hope Bryant's doing some work uh, with yes. a new company on, on, on creating. I mean, he's doing incredible. I know. Work. He's incredible. pretty amazing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, hey, look, let's go two for four. <laughs> what four different musics artists are you listening to now and why oh my goodness um you know it's so funny i am like i i try to surf a lot of different type of music and um but these days my head's been sort of deep in worship uh music so uh, christian gospel worship music but with a little kind of a a random flair i don't like uh, uh get hooked on any one artist and all of their stuff. I'll just put it on Spotify and listen to everything under that category uh, that I can hear. So I can't pinpoint just one name. I feel like in, in the past, I've been more a fan of a single band or singer, uh, but these days it's just the soundtrack of life that I tend to listen to. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. And you know, we are doing the same thing, you and I. Mm. I, I could so easily, so easily three or four years ago, give you my favorites, all of whom had already passed away because I'm kind of an old school girl. Uh, but now I am just so listening to world music. I'm listening to um, a lot more of the calming music. Of yeah. Eastern artists who I'd never heard of and my daughter introduced me to. And like you, the majority of my time my music is worship music. It mm -hmm. truly is. So I'm, 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 I'm with you there. Okay. There, there's, yes, yeah, there's so much stress and, and uh, anxiety and darkness in the world. Recently, I have felt a sense that those of us who can tap into joy need to do it and share it more often because the Lord knows everybody around us needs it. For years, I taught my students that you should play the music that takes you where you want. Mm, oh my goodness, I love that. Yeah, 
what four books do you recommend to our family and why? What books do you recommend? Like, you guys got to read this, you know? Oh, boy, there's so many. Uh, one that we used to recommend, like, it was, I mean, Hot Bread was Toxic Charity by Bob Lupton. Uh, he's written many books, but this one, for being as pithy and small as it is, uh, his experiences moving into inner city Atlanta way before it was a cool thing to do, trying out to serve the community and then learning that some of the ways he was doing it were not the most helpful. Uh, the subtitle is how how churches and charities can do more harm than good uh, sometimes. Uh, it's a very, very compelling read that changed completely how we thought about philanthropy. Uh, a book recently published by one of the uh, Heath brothers, Dan Heath, that had a lot of great hits uh, but this one, Dan wrote, I think, particularly the first half of the book, does such a great job at using plain English to explain really complex concepts that are necessary in this work. It's called Upstream. Uh, very, very good book, super well written. Um, you read the first few chapters, you start to get why you have to think very differently uh, about doing this kind of work. And then, gosh, I've had to do a serious book purging of my library uh, in recent years, and it's been a good discipline to figure out which books really matter most uh, to me. Uh, Just Mercy was a game changer. On the same time I was reading uh, The New Jim Crow, uh, Brian Stevenson's words on equally heavy subjects, but laden with so much hope. Uh, that it makes it easier to endure uh, dark histories uh, in, in our past. And I think if I were to say um, one more. Um, it's tough, isn't it? It, it, it is tough. Um, it's tough to narrow it. I, you know, I would say there's a little pamphlet, it's very, very small, uh, by the Trinity Forum uh, called A Man Who Changed the World. And it's the history of William Wilberforce. Born around the same time, uh, contemporary with the founding fathers, he, like Jefferson, had this larger-than-life father who was a heroic figure who died when he was at a young age. Just like Jefferson, he really decided to uh, become a, a lawyer, became a statesman, went into public office, was inspired by the idea of uh, all men being created equal. But unlike sort of the pressure to succumb to his fellow Virginians and pass on justice to future generations and conveniently fight only for the liberties of the few, William could not have a faith that excluded his responsibility to pursue happiness defined by what you experience when you seek the happiness of your fellow man. And he dedicated the rest of his life to two great objects, what he called the Reformation of Manners in England, uh, which in England, 16th, 17th century, it was nothing but debauchery and cheating and just awful social and ethical behavior that made people never want to deal with the British and the French at that time. But that led to his even greater goal, which was the abolition of slavery, which was absolutely unthinkable then at that time in their position in the world economy. And he dedicated his life to that, transformed the culture of London. By the time he passed away, three days before he died at the age of 63, uh, slavery was abolished in England, and England became the worldwide police against slave trafficking across the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. uh, a very different path than what America took at that time. But there's so many lessons to learn uh, about his life and how his faith was integrated into his work and how it literally changed the world, starting with a little handful of concerned friends. Uh, so that, that would be one. That's, uh, there's a lot of great books about his life, but he's maybe one of the most under-celebrated worldwide heroes uh, I know of, so.
You know, I'm going to share that on my social media, and I certainly will give homage to you for having brought it to my attention, because I was not aware of that book, and I'm very familiar with Wilberforce. I don't know how that happened. Oh, oh, yeah, this is a small treaty. For the people that don't want to read the big biographies on him, this is a great way to get a taste of how he thought and how he worked. Well, listen, we're going four for four here before we... Uh, I don't want to say goodbye before, <laughs> before we conclude this first conversation. That? <laughs> that sounds great to me. You've given so much and contextually and inherently, certainly you've answered this question. Will you dynamically answer it in a concise way for us? Uh, take the time you want, but be very pointed. What are the four best pieces of advice you've been given that you can share with this family listening? and why are you giving it and who gave it to you? Four? Mm -hmm. My mother told me, if you mop a floor, mop it like your name is written on it. Do your work with pride. Um, <laughs> a, a, a father figure, mentor, and pastor uh, said to me once, uh, Eddie, the shortest point, this is not his direct quote because it's a principle, uh, that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Uh, and sometimes we make things more complicated than they need to be. Um, I share with you what Bob Lupton said, uh, that what we all need most is a caring and connected neighbor. Uh, that still drives much of how I live every day. Um, and, you know, drawing from my own personal faith journey, I spent a few years where I was very, very active in inner city ministry, working with young men coming out of gangs and violence, but was also working in the business community and felt torn between the two and kind of felt like I needed to be called to one thing or the other because I was running ragged and feeling tired. And uh, what, what was kind of bubbled up in my soul that has been a guiding light is a passage in Matthew 5.16 that says, let your light shine before all men that they glorify your father in heaven. So if whatever I do, whether I'm doing this today or running a hot dog stand tomorrow, if somehow it makes people look up and thank God for his goodness, then I've done a good job. Eddie, from my heart to your home, thank you. Thank you. Please come back. Thank you. It is such a privilege. Thank you for your heart uh, and for the community that you're building here. I've been honored by being here with you.